Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan. My guest this week is once again Brittany Peep, and she will be bringing us up to date on what is certainly, without question, one of the most notorious cases of exploitation of animals we have seen in recent years. And that is, of course, the story underlying the Tiger King and the legal work that has surrounded it. Regardless of whether you actually watch the Tiger King on Netflix, and I continue to believe that I am the only person on the planet who did not watch it. But even if you are one of those like me who didn't watch it, you're, you're really going to want to hear what has happened and what is continuing to happen on the legal front because it's pretty remarkable. And actually, you'll be pleased to find out, though, you know, it certainly uh, put animals through hell, this, this facility and its related facilities. They have kicked off some real progress for animals under the Endangered Species Act. This is a pretty this is a pretty interesting story. Now before we get to that, I'd just like to take a moment to ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is the not-for-profit entity that produces this podcast along with the Our Hen House podcast. If you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org/donate. You can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year or you can make a one-time donation in any amount you can afford. And uh, we know these are hard times, to say the least, for many. So this is definitely meant only for those who are able. But I think all of you always know that that when you help out our hen house, you're helping to provide animal-friendly media, not just to yourself, but to others who maybe can't afford right now to contribute. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, please check out the Our Hen House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer, and a couple of recent episodes that might be of interest Episode 75 with Chef Cola, a.k.a. Nicola Kogoro. She is from Zimbabwe, and she not only runs African Vegan on a Budget, but is also the chef for the all-female team of rangers protecting animals from poachers working with the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. That is one cool interview. You really don't want to miss it. Also, you probably want to catch Episode 573 featuring Becky Jenkins, the new executive director of the Aquatic Life Institute who is bringing us up to date on the most neglected animals on the planet. And uh, let's get to the interview now. Brittany Pete is the Deputy General Counsel for Captive Law Enforcement for the PETA Foundation. She works on behalf of animals who are held captive in roadside zoos, traveling shows in the film and television industries, through legal and regulatory actions and public advocacy campaigns. She also negotiates and coordinates wild and exotic animal rescues for PETA, And she's overseen the rescues of, check this out, more than 400 chinchillas, 73 bears, 75 big cats, 13 chimpanzees, and two baboons. That's a pretty proud legacy, isn't it? She'll be joining me right after this. I want to tell you about an amazing service for anybody who's practicing animal law or interested in animal law. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier free online publication dedicated to offering in-depth, and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. Published weekly as a collaborative effort with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program, the Digest is a Brooks Institute service to the animal protection community. It can be like having a full-time lawyer on your staff researching and reporting to you on U.S. current legal developments related to animal protection issues. This Digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the field of animal law, either as a high-level overview of weekly developments for those who are focused on specific work, but nevertheless want to stay aware of other actions, or as a jumping-off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. Features include allowing you to compile updates by category, 
Search by key terms, and each issue contains links to background materials that will orient the reader around that specific issue. There are weekly highlights as well as quarterly summaries. You can subscribe to the Brooks Animal Law Digest at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome back to the Animal Law Podcast, Brittany. Thank you so much, Marianne. It's great to be here. It is great to have you. And we're kind of do, sort of doing a follow-up on an episode we did a long time ago. I think it was in 2018. And not exactly a follow-up, but some additions. But there's been some monumental developments in this whole factual scenario since then. And I am perhaps the only person in America who didn't watch Tiger King. But all of these cases revolve around that, that show. And I'm sure most of the people who are listening saw it. And since most of and the people in it, it was just the most popular show imaginable. And right in the middle, the beginning of the pandemic, when everybody was desperate for something to watch. I actually watched a couple of episodes and then I couldn't stand it anymore because these people were so loathsome. And I think we were all disappointed that there was not more coverage of the animal cruelty. I want to talk to you about that a little bit later. But in case there is anyone like me, or for those who just don't recall all of the major players and the events, and I know this is a very big ask, but can you just kind of go over the basic story and who was involved? Sure. Yeah, let me give it a shot. So Tiger King, it most broadly covered the story of Joe Exotic, whose real name is Joseph Maldonado Passage. And Joe, for decades, operated a roadside zoo in Winniewood, Oklahoma. It went by many names, but the one that most people know it by is the GW Exotic Animal Park. And Joe, for decades, was the primary breeder. Um, That's my dog, Leonard. (laughs) Joe, for decades, was the primary breeder of tiger cubs for the big cat cub petting industry in the United States. He was constantly breeding tigers and lions, hybrids of tigers and lions. He, at some points, had hundreds of big cats on his property. And he was the one where he was the, the breeder that most of the exhibitors across the country were getting their cubs from. And so he was the central story. It also delved into Carol Baskin, who operates the the Big Cat Rescue Sanctuary, um, which is excellent, reputable, Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries accredited. I've been there several times and they provide excellent care to their animals. But Carol, in addition to operating a sanctuary, is an animal activist, and she's been one of the most active activists for big cats and entertainment in the country, and and she's really good at it. And so the the series covered Carol's efforts to, uh, often successful efforts, to thwart Joe Exotic's animal abuse and exploitation business that culminated in Joe ultimately hiring two different people to murder Carol. The second person that he that he tried to hire turned out to be an undercover FBI agent. So Joe was ultimately convicted of two counts of murder for hire, along with um, 17 counts of wildlife-related charges, um, including for shooting five tigers in the head, um, five healthy tigers in the head, 
to make room for tigers that he was going to be paid to board. The series also covers other players in the industry, including Joe Exotic's former business partner, Jeff Lowe, who took over the GW Exotic Animal Park from Joe and is now having his own legal troubles that I'm sure we'll get into, as well as a man named Tim Stark, who operated a roadside zoo in Indiana called Wildlife in Need that centered around big cat cub petting. And he also was very closely involved with both Joe Exotic and Jeff Lowe. Um, So the series goes over their exploits. It does mainly focus on these crazy personalities. These people are... Are, are very eccentric. And I think that one of the reasons that Tiger King was so popular is that it had a real train wreck quality. So many people had no idea that, that this industry was even present in the United States. And so while I do think that it's fair to criticize Tiger King for not covering the animal issues as much, I do think that that the focus on these personalities is why it got the huge audience that it did and was able to shed such a light on this industry. And it, it has been you know, something that, that has been really helpful for us. We're able to get media attention to the cruelty that's taking place at the, the roadside zoos that were covered in Tiger King and the big cat cub petting industry more than ever before. And the notoriety that the series gave to these players has put a lot of pressure on federal agencies that for years turned their back on on big cats who were being abused and exploited in these facilities. And we're now finally starting to see them take action. And I don't want to give PETA short shrift because we, um, PETA has has been at the forefront of of ending this industry, but I do have to give Tiger King some credit for for giving this effort a push. Yeah, that's really great to hear because even though it it troubled me that they weren't covering the animal cruelty, of course you're absolutely right that if they had, if that had been the focus people wouldn't have wanted to watch. I mean, and watching sordid humans is just like entertaining for most people. So yeah, that was, that only made sense. And of course it would not have gotten the audience. And it's great to hear that it has been that useful for you. That's certainly one of the things I wanted to go into. Now I interviewed you back in 2018 before this became big Hollywood um, about the wildlife (laughs) and need case that you just mentioned with um, involving Tim Stark. And, uh, so they, they just in they, these people just intersected with the people in Tiger, the main folks in Tiger King because they're all in the same industry. Is that is that what is that right? So the wildlife in need case, wildlife in need is operated by Tim Stark, and he he does appear in Tiger King. Tim Stark would acquire big cats and other animals from from Joe Exotic. They worked closely throughout the years, and after Joe was arrested for a short time, and the series covers this, for a short time, Jeff Lowe 
and Tim Stark themselves were business partners working to open a new roadside zoo, but ultimately they had a falling out. Okay. And can you briefly remind us what that case involved and bring us up to date? I think that we interviewed you right after you got a preliminary injunction. Okay. So the PETA sued Wildlife in Need, Tim Stark himself, Tim Stark's now ex-wife, Melissa, under the, the Federal Endangered Species Act, alleging that using tigers, lions, and tiger-lion hybrids in encounters with the public violated the ESA, prematurely separating them from their mothers, declawing them, um, as well as housing them in inadequate conditions violated the ESA. So those were the, the allegations in our case. Early on, we were able to get a preliminary injunction that prevented Stark from declawing cats from prematurely separating them from their mothers, from removing any cats from his property, uh, as well as using the cats in encounters altogether. As has been the case with all of these cases that we've brought against roadside zoo operators, they simply refuse to abide by court orders. So there were numerous violations of the preliminary injunction including one in which Tim Stark transferred four lion cubs from his property to Jeff Lowe's property in Oklahoma in violation of the preliminary injunction. And that will become important in just a, in just a couple of minutes. We ultimately, last year, late last year, we won the wildlife in need case on summary judgment on the issues of premature separation, declawing, and um, and big cat cub petting. And so we now have, as was our goal, the first federal precedent finding that prematurely separating big cat cubs from their mothers, declawing them, and using big cats in public encounters violates the Federal Endangered Species Act. And one issue that I really want to highlight the, the opinion explicitly found that tiger-lion hybrids are protected under the Endangered Species Act, which was a critically important holding for us uh, because a lot of these exhibitors, including Jeff Lowe himself, had expressed their plans to try to evade PETA's litigation under the ESA by, by breeding tiger-lion hybrids. And so we've now cut off that strategy. You know, at, at least we have that one precedent. So as a result of that ruling, PETA was able to remove every big cat, uh, every tiger-lion and tiger-lion hybrid from Tim Stark's facility in September. Um, and we were also able to remove the lion cubs that that Tim Stark transferred to Jeff Lowe in Oklahoma. There were four. One died shortly before uh, we were able to rescue them, but we were able to get the three juvenile lions out of Jeff Lowe's hands um, and into an accredited sanctuary. 
That's really great. That's really great news. And if people want more details on the um, on the legal issues involved, of course, it'd be good to go back to Brittany's interview on, I think it was episode 42 of, of the podcast. And I'm just curious, like, uh, can you can you give us a little of the legal context of why the tiger lion hybrids were considered endangered species? I think that's that's not entirely intuitive. Yeah, exactly. So if you look at if you look at the ESA, there there is a provision that finds that hybrids of listed species are also covered. So there was there was a case against a roadside zoo several years ago that related to to tiger lion hybrids before lions were listed. I think I think lions were were listed in 2016. And the court in that case held that because because ligers aren't hybrids of two listed species, they were not entitled to ESA protection. But once lions were listed, even though ligers aren't a species that actually exists in nature, they're covered under the ESA as hybrids of two listed species. And what's the rationale behind that? Is it to protect the ligers themselves as endangered, or is it because by protecting them you protect the original species? I think that you could that you could argue either. We don't know what Congress's intent or or the the agency's intent was in I, I believe it's a regulation. I'd have to go back and look, but I, I don't know what the intent behind that was, but I, I suspect that both of those rationales, were likely at play. Mm-hmm. So let's get to the other case, the more recent one. And as I mentioned, if you want more detail on the legal issues in the um, Wildlife in Need case, uh, please go back to the other episode. But the other case that, that of course, seems even more intimately involved with the major players in uh, Tiger King is Peter's more recent suit against Jeff Lowe and a number of other defendants. Actually, can you tell us who the defendants are in the Lowe case and how they relate to the um, Tiger King saga? Yes. And that case has not actually been filed yet. Um, right. The ESA requires plaintiffs to provide potential defendants with 60 days notice prior to actually filing a case. And so we have we have not actually filed that suit yet, um, but we'll be doing so shortly. Um, but that doesn't mean that there hasn't already been lots of excitement in this case. Well, the case that doesn't quite exist yet. But um, <laughs> yeah. so the defendants in in this case are are Jeff Lowe, his wife Lauren, the corporate entity Tiger King LLC. The Lowe's now operate a new roadside zoo in Thackerville, Oklahoma, um, because they lost the GW exotic property to Carol Baskin in October. And they're intending to call that facility the Tiger King Zoo, trying to cash in on their, their Tiger King celebrity. The owner of that property is a woman named Cheryl Scott. Um, she's also named she will also be named as a defendant in that lawsuit, as will Eric Yano, um, who is purports to be a business partner of Lowe's in the Tiger King Zoo venture, as well as Eric Cowie, who is a zookeeper working for Jeff Lowe, who previously worked for Joe Exotic. Eric Cowie also appeared in Tiger King. People will most likely remember him, a scene in which he was was interviewed in his home, um, extremely, extremely drunk. Okay. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds memorable. All right. So 
I'm just going to put a pause on that for a second and go back to the the thing that you mentioned about Carol Baskin now having taken over the facility. How did that come about? Yes. So, I mean, this could be probably a five hour long podcast, (laughs) you know, with all of the, the various legal happenings that have been going on related to Tiger King. But this all started actually as a suit against Joe Exotic. And Tiger King covers Carol Baskin's, well, it's Big Cat Rescue's lawsuit against Joe Exotic for violating Big Cat Rescue's trademark. He put up a website that was called, I I believe, Big Cat Rescue Entertainment or something like that. And when people searched for Big Cat Rescue, that website would come up, but it would direct users to content that anti-Big Cat Rescue content. And there was also a photo that Joe acquired and, and was using to which Carol was able to acquire copyright. So Big Cat Rescue sued Joe for violating Big Cat Rescue's trademark and copyright. And they were able to obtain a settlement in that case for a million dollars. And at the time, it was against Joe and I believe GW Exotic Animal Park. And so Joe dissolved GW Exotic Animal Park Filed for bank, filed for personal bankruptcy, and he had a couple of his friends establish a new entity for the zoo, and then Joe became an employee of the zoo. So basically, he was trying to evade collection, Big Cat Rescue, collecting this million dollar judgment. And so this was a saga for many, many years, where Big Cat Rescue was coming after Joe, trying to collect this judgment. And as soon as they would get close to collecting against a corporate entity, they would dissolve that corporate entity and start a new one. So then Big Cat Rescue would have to essentially start over in the collections process. Well, at one point, Joe dissolved one of these entities and he sold the business to Jeff Lowe. And Jeff Lowe became the principal in the Greater Winniewood Exotic Animal Park. And so then Jeff Lowe became involved in this and Big Cat Rescue was able to argue an LLC owned the land on which the zoo sat. And the principals of the LLC were Jeff Lowe um, and Joe's mom. There was a lot of complicated legal wrangling relating to Joe's mother hiding assets from Big Cat Rescue and all of these things. But ultimately, a court granted Big Cat Rescue ownership of the Winniewood Zoo property as well as all of the building and the buildings and fixtures on it. For a number of months, the court gave Jeff Lowe a number of months to to get off the property. And in the meantime, he was required to pay rent to, to Big Cat Rescue. And Big Cat Rescue took over the property in October. And that's when Jeff moved himself and most of the animals from the Winniewood facility to this Thackerville property that Cheryl Scott owns. These people have so much energy. I, it just, it's all so exhausting. It's, it is exhausting. <laughs> yes. yeah. Just keeping track of it is tiring. It is. All right, so that, that that tells us what's going on at that. Well, what is going on at that facility? You said October, so it hasn't been very long. But what are the plans for that facility? 
uh, now that Carol Baskin owns it. We have to back up yet again. Over the summer, um, so after after Tiger King came out, the Winniewood Zoo was closed for a number of months. They were able to reopen. Visitors were, they spiked for a while because of the Tiger King factor, and then they, they dribbled off. And animal care, which had always been abysmal at the facility, tanked. And it became a true nightmare for the animals at that facility. And so we saw two different USDA inspection reports that listed horrors for animals, including um, one of the lion cubs we ultimately rescued during one inspection was so sick that the USDA actually halted the inspection and ordered Jeff Lowe to seek immediate veterinary care for this lion cub who was so sick that she was lying in the mud she wouldn't lift her head or move. I have never, I've been doing this for 11 years and I've never seen the USDA actually halt an inspection because an animal was so ill. They were also cited because fly strike at the facility was incredibly severe. Fly strike is when flies land on an animal. It typically occurs on the ears. And they're usually attracted to, to places that have extremely unsanitary conditions, usually excessive feces. They'll land on the animal's ears and lay eggs. And then the maggots hatch and eat away at the animal's ears. Mm. So these lion cubs that we ultimately rescued in September, one of the cubs' ears was eaten away so severely that it looked as if part of her ear had actually been amputated. Um, so they were cited over that. They were cited after the USDA found partially decomposing bodies of, of dead cats in a, a, a burn pile in, in the back of the facility, just horror after horror after horror. And in another extremely rare move by the USDA, they suspended Jeff Lowe's license for 21 days. Um, and at the same time, they filed an administrative lawsuit against him seeking not only to revoke his own Animal Welfare Act license, which he needs to operate a zoo, but they also named his wife Lauren Lowe in the lawsuit, which would prevent her, if, if the USDA is successful, would prevent her from ever being able to acquire a USDA license as well. As a result of, of that, Jeff Lowe ended up giving up his Animal Welfare Act license shortly before they moved from Winniewood to Thackerville. The, the USDA administrative lawsuit continues uh, because the, the agency wants to ensure that he is permanent, that he and Lauren are permanently disqualified from, from being licensed by the USDA. So while the the Lowe's claim that they want to open Tiger King Zoo in March, they can't legally do so. And that brings us to the next lawsuit. In addition to the Endangered Species Act lawsuit that PETA has noticed, the United States has sued Jeff Lowe, Lauren Lowe, Tiger King Park, LLC, and one other entity 
both under the Endangered Species Act and under the Animal Welfare Act. And this, again, is unheard of. It's something that PETA has been pushing the USDA and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to do for years, to refer cases to the Department of Justice for criminal or civil prosecution. Um, in this case, it's a, it's a civil matter. And the agency is alleging, as, as, PETA, as PETA has, that prematurely separating big cat cubs from their mothers and using them in encounters violates the ESA. And they're relying on the precedent that PETA established in PETA versus Wildlife in Eden Tim Stark, which is really exciting that this precedent that we were able to establish um, is taking off. And not only that, but that the government is, is using it and that the government is taking this position that cub petting violates the ESA. It's extremely consequential to eradicating this industry once and for all. And the... Again, there have been many, many twists and turns in this DOJ case, even just since it was filed a couple of months ago. But the Department of Justice took the extraordinary step of seeking a preliminary injunction in that case, asking the court to allow the government to temporarily move all of the big cats at the Tiger King Zoo who are one year old and younger along with their mothers, to reputable facilities pending trial because cubs were dying. The, one of, the, one of the, the juvenile lions that PETA rescued in, in September, Nala, was so lame on the day that we rescued her that she could barely take a couple of steps without just falling over. She was transferred to the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Colorado. They took her to Colorado State University which found severe nutritional deficiencies and what is called metabolic bone disease, which is basically when it happens often when cubs are prematurely separated from their mothers because they're not getting all of the nutrition that they need. And their bones become so brittle that they break. And so Nala, even though she wasn't even a year old yet, she had multiple fractures in her legs that had gone completely untreated by the Lowe's. Um, thankfully, and thanks to the excellent veterinary care that the Wild Animal Sanctuary provided, she's doing great now and is running around and playing with the other lions that we were able to rescue that day. But there was another cub who was, was transferred to, to Tennessee prior to the Lowe's moving, and she ended up needing to be euthanized as a result of metabolic bone disease. And in mid-December, another cub, a cub named Daniel, was euthanized as a result of, of metabolic bone disease. And the, the Lowe's had previously agreed to confer with the government prior to disposing of animals in any way, including via euthanasia. And the government's position was that with proper care, Daniel could have recovered. He did not have to die. And so the Department of Justice went to the court um, in a hearing, as it was a, a last week, and they asked the court to allow them to transfer the 10 cubs currently at Tiger King Park to a reputable facility pending trial. And last Friday, the court granted that motion. Oh, that's great news. That's really, that's really amazing. And do you find that 
when the USDA hands off a case to DOJ, that the, the situation improves, that there's a more even-handed handling of these cases? Well, I mean, this is just how unusual this is. That's nev- it's never happened it's never before. Happened. Yeah. Well, <laughs> did you notice it in this case? <laughs> I mean, and I have to give I have to give the government huge props. They have. How often do you say that, Brittany? Uh, very, very rarely. <laughs> very, very rarely. But the Department of Justice has done an absolutely incredible job in looking out for the animals in this case. Great. For the government to to seek a preliminary injunction to to actually remove animals pending a trial is is absolutely unprecedented and extraordinary and and one hundred percent the right thing. It's exactly what we would have done. And and again, the the government is is using the court's opinion in in PETA versus Wildlife in Need to contend in in this Oklahoma federal district court that lion-tiger hybrids are covered under the ESA. Um, And in this preliminary injunction ruling, the court cited the PETA versus wildlife in need ruling and and agreed that tiger-lion hybrids are covered, which is extremely consequential in this case and, and, you know, for... The, the effort across the country. So it's, I was telling colleagues earlier this week that, you know, we last year as part of a project, I estimated that we would be able to eradicate cub petting within the next decade. We're almost there. I, I, cub petting is going to be a thing of the past within the next year or two. That's remarkable progress. It kind of brings up the question though, if the government is in there and and doing a good job. Why is PETA also suing? Well, this, it, like I said, this is unprecedented. The government is doing a great job, and you know, at this point, we have we have faith that uh, that that their case will will be wonderful and successful. But uh, but our allegations are more broad, and there are additional allegations that that PETA will be alleging. And uh, okay, can I, I'm not sure how much you can talk about the case since you haven't filed it yet. But it's also an Endangered Species Act case. Is that that's right? Like you're not you're not suing under any other statutes. The case that the case that we will be filing um, will be under the Endangered Species Act on behalf of tigers, lions, and tiger lion hybrids and lemurs at the facility. And, and there is a possibility that, that we will, and I'm sorry that I can't go into this now, hopefully yeah, we can course. talk about it in the future, but there is, I think, a strong likelihood that we will be pursuing relief under additional theories as well. Interesting. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. And as far as the Endangered Species Act causes of action go, and I know we've discussed this before, but but since some people may not be familiar with how it works, can you just remind people of why you have standing to bring these suits on behalf of these animals? Yes, thank you, thank you for that. So unlike the, the Animal Welfare Act and so many other statutes, the Endangered Species Act allows for citizen suits. It has a citizen suit provision that allows people to, to bring civil actions against defendants that are committing quote unquote takes against threatened and endangered species 
in the United States. And takes include many things. In the wildlife and need case, we were able to allege that declawing was a take for, for mutilating um, the animals. So a take can be to kill, to mutilate. And the definition under take that we use most often is, is harm and harassment, which includes things like stifling an animal's natural behaviors, that, that type of thing. And do the specific allegations here differ significantly from those in the other case? You had mentioned that the USDA is reiterating your claims that were in the other lawsuit regarding cub petting and also the inclusion of ligers. But um, do you have additional allegations here or different ones about how these animals were being uh, harmed? There are there are a lot of the same the same types of allegations. Um, so again, we're alleging that prematurely separating big cat cubs from their mothers violates the ESA. That using big cat cubs for encounters with the public violates the ESA. This was the case in the wildlife in need suit as well. Um, but there will also be uh, a number of claims relating to the the failure to provide adequate veterinary care. But yes, there are there are a lot of there are a lot of similar claims. Now, if I have this right, and tell me if I don't, in the prior case, the defendants argued, I think that the AWA, the Animal Welfare Act, preempts the ESA. Can you explain this argument why it's wrong, but also how the A- the Animal Welfare Act actually does intersect with the Endangered Species Act? Sure. Yes, that that was that was one of the arguments that the defendants in the wildlife in need case used. And the the Animal Welfare Act, which is administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, it applies broadly to, in, in general, to warm-blooded animals. That ends up not being entirely true in practice um, in a number of different areas, including for, for the purposes of these lawsuits, exhibition to the public. So that's where roadside zoos come in. The Endangered Species Act is administered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it only covers animals who are listed as as threatened or endangered under the ESA. So there are species who are covered under both of those. So, you know, for example, the big cats at Wildlife in Need or, or Tiger King Park, they're subject to both the Animal Welfare Act and the Endangered Species Act. But the Animal Welfare Act is explicit um, in the statute that there is concurrent jurisdiction with local, state, and federal, other local, state, other more restrictive local, state, and federal laws. So it's clear that, that both the Animal Welfare Act and the Endangered Species Act can apply to, to the same animals. They also intersect, and I hope that I don't get this wrong because I don't have the definitions right in front of me, under the definition of harass, which does exempt some practices that comply with generally accepted standards standards under the Animal Welfare Act. And so that's another, you know, that's that's another thing that we that we deal with in these cases is showing that even when, and this is often the case, the USDA hasn't cited a facility for something that should violate the Animal Welfare Act. These are not generally accepted practices, and that they do they do constitute 
essentially unsighted violations of the Animal Welfare Act. And we've been able to prove that out using expert testimony. Yeah, that that was well explained. It's a little complicated, but I thought we should lay it out there. Do you expect another argument in low similar to this? And I, I guess since you're not going to tell us your causes of action, you're probably not going to tell us your anticipated defenses. But, <laughs> yeah, but I, can you just give us any idea of, of, of what kind of arguments you get in these kind of cases? Well, I mean, what I can say is what we've seen the defendants preview as, as some of the defenses in in the Department of, in the United States case against them, you know, which they're again trying to allege that lion-tiger hybrids are not covered under the Endangered Species Act. And for the purposes of the, the Animal Welfare Act case against them, they're alleging that they are, that they're not exhibitors subject to the Animal Welfare Act. And in relation to that argument, another great position by the government in their case is that by opening their facility up to members of the media, documentary film crews, they are exhibiting. They've been, the Lowe's have, have posted videos on a, a, a service called, called Cameo, where members of the public can request for a fee, a video from, from celebrities. And the Lowe's have an account and they've They've made some videos, including animals. Well, that's exhibition. Um, yeah, that Lauren like Lowe has a profile on a site called OnlyFans, where she has she's also posted content that that includes big cats. That's exhibition, and so this is this is a a a, a wonderful broad interpretation of the definition of exhibitor under the Animal Welfare Act that we're definitely going to be able to to use at PETA to the advantage of the animals. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm confused. All right, so the, if the animal welfare, the, under the Animal Welfare Act, they have to be exhibitors. But the Endangered Species Act arguments don't just apply to exhibitors, do they? They apply to that's anyone right. who's holding that's these animals. Ex- that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So for the purposes of the Animal Welfare Act claims under the DOJ's suit, they're saying, okay. well, that doesn't apply to us. We're not exhibitors. So, for example, one of the one of the things that the government asked asked the the court to to grant them in their preliminary injunction motion was to order the Lowe's to secure the services of what's called an attending veterinarian, which is required under the Animal Welfare Act for licensees. Well, the Lowe's are saying, we don't have to do that, Your Honor. We're not exhibitors. But the court didn't buy it. The court bought the, they deferred to the USDA's interpretation of the definition of exhibitor. And the Lowe's now have two weeks to find an attending veterinarian. And under the Animal Welfare Act, an attending veterinarian is someone with training and experience in the species. So they need to find someone who has experience with big cats. And what they've told the court so far is that they've been searching for an attending veterinarian for months and no one will work with them. So That sounds um, like it could be true. <laughs> like who, who in the name of God would want to work with them? Yeah, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out going forward and 
what additional action the government might take in two weeks if and when the Lowe's are not able to secure an attending veterinarian. Yeah, it would seem that that if the reason you can't secure an attending veterinarian is because of your hideous reputation, that would not be good enough to let you off the hook here. Definitely not. uh, (laughs) I mean, the other issue that has come up in some other roadside suitcases, I don't know whether it applies here, is sometimes when the causes of action are being brought under the Endangered Species Act, there are some animals there who aren't endangered. Are there any other animals? Are these all big cats that are endangered species? Uh, so the, the endangered species that the lows have um, are the big cats. And in addition to the tigers, lions, and tiger-lion hybrids, they have, I, I believe it's a, a jaguar who's also ESA protected. And then they have, they have lemurs and, and they're ESA protected. So in terms of the government's case, those are the species that will be covered by their ESA claims. But the rest of the animals at the facility are covered by their Animal Welfare Act claims. Okay. So they do have other animals. They do. They do. They have a number of, they have a number of primates. They have wolves. Uh, they have, a, they have a, a very large number of animals. And these are, all of these animals are currently being held at that facility, the new facility in, right. um, in Oklahoma, except that soon, hopefully, they will have to transfer the, the cubs and the mothers. That's right. Great. Okay. So that's where we are now. Did I leave anything out about that you can uh, are allowed to talk about yet? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure <laughs> so much, but I mean, there's just so much involved in, in these cases. Everything, there, there are so many different convoluted stories of evading court orders. and that, But yeah, those are, those are the broad strokes of, of the there, was a, there were a number of criminal law issues as well, weren't there, that woven in here? What happened with those? I mean, obviously, we know that Joe Maldonado is in prison. For, even I know that. <laughs> He's in prison for his murder for hire scheme, his unsuccessful murder for hire scheme. Yes. And, and he was not given clemency by yeah. President Trump, So, even though he did seek it. So we know about that. But what other criminal uh, cases have, have been floating around here? The Indiana Attorney General's office, um, this was another civil, civil suit, but it leads to some criminal activity and criminal charges. The Indiana Attorney General's office, again, props to the government. I mean, they, they did such an incredible job with this case. They filed a lawsuit against Tim Stark and Wildlife in Need over... Wildlife in Need is a, a, a nonprofit registered charity, or was, in, in Indiana. And they filed a lawsuit against Tim and Wildlife in Need for misappropriating charitable funds. Ah, uh, that's not surprising. And just like he did in in PETA's lawsuit, Tim Tim represented himself and evaded court orders, behaved extremely unprofessionally, threatened. Um, at, at one point, he this was this video was published after PETA won its summary judgment motion. He published a, a video on Facebook Live in which he threatened PETA attorneys. The judge in the case, uh, Indiana Assistant Attorney General, and at one point in the video, he brandished a rifle. I mean, just unhinged type behavior. He 
during a site inspection for the state AG's case, at one point he pushed an assistant attorney general and that AAG ultimately filed an assault case against him. And the, the Indiana attorney general's office, they also moved for temporary placement of the, the animals who were at issue in their case, which was, I mean, it was all of the animals, but by then PETA had already um, won summary judgment in our case. And, and so we were responsible for moving. Sorry, my dog is he's actually squeezing a little tiger cub toy. I, oh my God, so I could tell what was going on. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so the Indiana AG's office was was able to um, get an order allowing them to temporarily remove the non-big cats from the facility. Uh-huh. And true to form, the Indiana AG's office showed up on the first day to remove animals, and there were a large number of animals missing. They ultimately found some of the animals baking in an unventilated trailer um, in the woods, hidden in the woods in the back of the property. And they went to the court and asked the court to compel Tim to, to tell them where the rest of the animals were, and Tim refused to do it. So the court ended up issuing a warrant for his arrest, and he ended up being on the lamb for, I think, around a week. And so on the day PETA went in to rescue the big cats in our case after the Indiana AG's office had already removed the animals from their case. And so when we went in to do our rescue in September, Tim was at large. He was a fugitive. And he had told numerous people over the years that if PETA ever tried to come and take some of his animals um, that no one would walk out of there alive. He told other people that that there were bombs in the corner of the corners of the tiger cages, and that he would detonate those bombs using his cell phone. Um, and he was a sharpshooter in the army, so you know these weren't just empty threats. And he always carried a gun. Um, so we ended up having federal marshals as well as state and local police and sheriff's officials with us on the day of the rescue. Um, We went in a a huge convoy uh, that blocked traffic, um, and there were dozens of law enforcement officials surrounding the facility to protect us from potential threats from Tim. Um, He was ultimately arrested in upstate New York, um, and his charges, criminal charges are pending. Wow, that's quite a story. I think uh, there might be another TV series in here. Um, You know, there was one thing, getting back to the case, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about that I forgot, and I'm just going to insert it now. It's this motion to perpetuate evidence that you haven't filed yet. You did file this motion. Can you explain what that is and why it was so important here? Yes. um, So PETA filed a motion um, essentially for for pre-suit discovery, in this case. And, and we filed it because like his former business partner, Tim Stark, Jeff Lowe has a long history of, of lying, of evading court orders, of transferring animals in violation of court orders. 
so PETA went to the court and asked for a site inspection that would allow us to, to go in and inventory the endangered animals at the facility, as well as to take depositions of both Jeff and Lauren Lowe and Eric Cowie, uh, the zookeeper, to again determine which animals are actually at the facility. The court granted that motion and we will be, I can't say exactly when we're going in, um, but we're going in very, going into the facility very, very soon. You live an exciting life, Brittany. <laughs> it's, it, there's never a dull moment, that's for sure. <laughs> I know I have to let you go because we could spend five hours, but that really wouldn't yes. be inappropriate. And I know you have a hard stop here. So uh, I'm going to let you go, though. I have a million more questions. Thanks so much for doing this and getting us up to date. Because this you. is a one crazy, one crazy set of cases. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And um, I really appreciate the time and, you know, you shedding a light on this really important issue in, in animal law. Oh, my pleasure. And it, it means I didn't really have to watch the, watch the show. So even better. I get to know all of these sordid details without actually looking at these people. So <laughs> that's perfect. And I'm so excited that you're already seeing some, some benefit coming from the lawsuits and from the show. So that's really great to hear. So thank you so much for, for sharing it with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thank you so much to Brittany Pete for taking the time to get us all up to date on the crazy shenanigans involved with the Tiger King. Thank you to Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. If you are not already a subscriber, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review there or on Apple Podcasts and if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org donate. And thanks so much for tuning in. Please continue to keep yourself safe. <laughs>